So we were talking about the difference between, say, a fashion collection and a watch or jewellery collection. Yes. So let's go back to that. Avril. Right. Yes, and that's fine. Um, yes, you do get collections because obviously every firm, every brand has to move on. Um, and even though you know, pieces of high jewellery and fabulous watches are, are, are built to last forever, you, you still want to encourage to buy people to buy new things and to introduce new ideas into, into your, your, your work. So, um, yes, but I, what I rather like about jewellery in particular, you, you get a collection. People will say we're launching a new collection. It's beautiful, wonderful high jewellery, one-off pieces. Um, and you go there and then you'll find there are the pieces are all laid out. And then maybe they, they have, as I, I was explaining, that um, normally before they make the piece, they, they do these beautiful hand-drawn pastel illustrations, which are called gouache in French, which are you know, how the piece will look. That's almost a working drawing for the jewellers and is also often given to the client at the end of the day, if something's been made bespoke or somebody's bought a one-off piece, they often get this beautiful drawing as well, which they can have framed. But sometimes you'll find the gouache is there and the piece isn't. And you go, oh, where's that? Oh, we haven't finished it yet. So they are happy to show the collection as far as it's gone, because sometimes they come across things that they didn't quite know how they were going to complete it. And it's turned out to be harder than they thought. Or they got a stone and the stone turns out to be not quite right and they've got to get another stone. So there are sometimes delays and it never worries them. Pieces of jewellery are ready when they're ready. And I yeah. really love that idea. Yes. <laughs> because again, yeah. if something's so worth having, then it's worth waiting for however long it takes. Um, and the same with watches, actually, because some of them are... You know, it's a much more industrial process. Obviously, there's there's not usually just one, although occasionally there is. That's another story. Certain jewellery watches, they are literally because they can't repeat the stones again. There's one and the next one will be some, somewhat different. Um, but so it's, it's, it's not quite so individual. But even so, a lot of them, if you are building a handmade, complicated movement, it takes ages. And even though they might say, right, we're, we're launching this and here, here is our prototype. Oh, so if he's any said, well, I'd like one of those, even though it's going to cost me half a million quid, how long will I wait? They make, could say two years. Mm. <laughs> so that's sometimes how long it can take. So again, you've got to wait. So although they will launch a collection, particularly with watches, doesn't mean to say you can have it now. Often with jewellery, with one-offs, the piece, some of the pieces will be done, not necessarily all of them, but the pieces that are done and there, when they launch the collection, they're normally available for sale. Watches, not necessarily, because they will only make one, but they're planning on doing, say, an edition of 10, then you have to wait till they've built the others. It's not like a car. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> an interesting one world. <laughs> one of the things that's also occurred to me while we're talking is because, as I, I, I repeat, it's not my specialist area, which is why I, I really wanted to talk to you, is that when you take the big brands, names, um, houses, whatever, whether it's a Cartier or Van Cleef and Arpels, there's also a huge difference between the sort of available jewellery, the sort of collections that are entry price points or not necessarily even that, and the really amazing pieces that they do. And I think that's also difficult for people outside to sometimes realise that there are extraordinary things as well as things that are easier for the ordinary shopper to actually acquire. Yes, well that, I mean, it, that's basically the difference between couture and ready-to-wear, or yeah. even between ready-to-wear and diffusion lines, if you like. 
Um, that's exactly what, what those things represent. So obviously even a brand like Cartier does have relatively reasonably priced pieces, um, which the price is meant to be related obviously to the cost of gold and the cost of any diamonds that there may be. Interesting enough at the moment, I think the cost of gold makes one more difference than the cost of diamonds, unless they are substantially sized diamonds. Yeah. Obviously once you get up to stuff where you're weighing in carrots rather than points of a carrot, then um, yeah, that's, that, that makes a huge difference. But quite often, I mean, with watches say, you know, a stainless steel watch with diamonds around the edge can actually be quite reasonably priced. You look at the same thing in solid gold, particularly with a solid gold bracelet and you're adding a naught or two. <laughs> 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 it's amazing what difference it makes. <laughs> and then of course, the other great thing is auctions. Yes. Because what I'm staggered at is that there are jewelry auctions all over the world endlessly completely you can find so much um and there i think gosh if you've got your to be a really good sort of auction hound you really have to have a sort of sixth sense as to what's going to be happening so that mm. you can look at stuff and think i think that might be worth a bit more in 10 years time or five years time than it is now uh, i suppose like anything else really you, you you've got to have a hunch and know which way the market's going um because obviously the the sort of with certain brands, I mean, like, I mean, Cartier is a classic point. Because it's Cartier, it will probably fetch more. Because it's Cartier, it may well also still have lasting value too. So hopefully you won't lose that, but it will depend what it is. <laughs> but you, even then you don't necessarily know because way back in the 70s, 80s, Cartier used to make things called Les Moustes, which I'm sure you possibly remember, which was sort of easy to buy, easy to wear jewellery and watches. The watches in particular often had quartz movements. And then for a while, nobody wanted those, but now you'd be surprised. You can still get a little bit of money for a Cartier quartz from the 70s or 80s. You know? <laughs> so. Because that's also the great thing, because I see a, a, a great many of the um, alerts and the news about the auctions, as well as that I, in, again, expressing my ignorance, I assumed that things needed to be of a certain age with jewellery. But what, of course, is interesting is that, that a lot of the things are, are post-war. Oh, yes. Um, very much so. Goodness, I thought you were going to say were last years. But <laughs> yeah, post-war, absolutely. I mean, 50s, 60s, into the 70s, the whole mid-century thing is absolutely one of the biggest areas. Right now, in jewellery and in watches, 50s, 60s, 70s are huge selling areas. Which is then, again, back to having some kind of knowledge of history. Yes, absolutely. You know, you know the history of the house. I mean, I could take an example. I, I have, <laughs> some years ago, again, it was the earlier days when I started writing about these things, I was writing a piece about smaller gold watches for women, which suddenly were having a bit of a sort of revival and sort of thought, what would I like best out of these? Oh, my God. You remember those Piaget? Sometimes they were cuffs. Sometimes they were just little bracelet watches, uh, gold watches from the sort of when, when they were really at the top of their game in the early 70s. And Jackie Kennedy had one, which was a sort of gold bracelet watch with an oval face made of green jade. I think it was green jade with um, a diamond bezel. And, you know, for a long time, nobody wanted those sort of things. They were too small. They weren't interesting enough. And those then suddenly those hard stone dials and gold, gold watches began to come back in. And, you know, I used to sometimes look on websites and then I probably could have got one for a couple of grand, not, not one of the big cuff ones, they would have been more. But 
not a huge amount of money now you're looking at 10 <laughs> yeah yeah and that's the sort of change because suddenly everybody wants those kind of things you know but if i'd been wise and bought it then i would have done very well <laughs> because that's also isn't it it's how jewelry like everything to do with fashion also changes yes. because they used to be cocktail watches i believe they were called weren't they which Indeed. were tiny They're really small uh, yes yeah and, and I've got a watch that belonged to my mother from before, before the Second World War, and it's tiny. I mean, I don't know how you were ever supposed to read the face of it. I think it was more of a, a bracelet that happened exactly. to have a watch in it rather that than to have a, a watch. Yeah, yeah, completely. Well, that all goes back to the history of secret watches, which were those ones that had a little lid over the dial. Yeah. And they still make them. And Van Cleef were really big with those. And the whole idea was that women were not allowed to look at the time. <laughs> because they were not in case the men they were with thought they were bored okay fine for the men to be bored but not the women you know typical <laughs> uh, so they, 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 the idea was that you just could flick the lid open very quickly and look at the time and then shut it again and you were just wearing a bracelet you know which is how that sort of started and obviously because jewelry was quite sort of delicate back in the earlier part of the 20th century um most of those pieces had tiny tiny movements so interestingly enough your mother's watch presumably has a proper movement in there not a quarter. yes yeah my goodness if that's the, the, well the world's smallest movement is a thing by Yeja Le Coultre called the 101 the queen has one yeah. and that apparently the worst thing about they've actually revived it they're making them again they didn't make them for a while because the real problem was paying to get them maintained because you can imagine trying to take one of those movements apart. <laughs> yes. Not, you know, it's tiny. In order to um, to sort of look, make sure each piece is still okay. Because what they do, they take it apart completely and rebuild it with the same bits, unless there's something wrong and they have to put a new bit in. But you can imagine. So you were paying probably four or five times as much to have that done as something larger. Because yeah. something larger would be much easier, unless it was complicated. <laughs> but I think that... That also leads me on to the next thing, which um, is, is something that fascinates me, is the transformation of pieces of jewellery. Necklaces that turn into two, you know, two bracelets. That is extraordinary because in a way, it's a wonderful thing that doesn't apply to almost anything else. Yeah. You well, know, yes. that, that, that idea that tiaras turn into necklaces and yes. earrings and, and, yes. and whatever. That is an extraordinary part of high jewellery. But that is practicality. Yeah. Because most people, even in the, the, the most rarefied of circles, probably didn't have too many occasions to wear the tiara. <laughs> so one that could become a necklace or I think there was a big thing in the, in the 30s where often the centre of it made into two clips. Yes. So things like that, uh, or certainly a couple of bracelets, you know, you turned your 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 tiara into, if not yeah. into a necklace, into two bracelets, or sometimes it would do both, you know, you'd have such a big thing that you could make it necklace <laughs> and two bracelets, you know, or a couple of earrings in there somewhere. I mean, you know, it was, it was the obvious thing to do, and that isn't anything new at all. That's, I would certainly back to the 19th century and possibly even further on that. So that's always been a, a, a great idea. And again, it's something that's coming back in. Um, a lot of people are doing transformable high jewellery now because they say that people are still happy to spend a lot of money on jewellery, but they, they maybe want value. So something that they can actually use yeah. more than just once in a very blue moon, the rest of the time it sits in a bank vault. 
um, they're coming back to it. And so a lot of people are doing transformable stuff now, which is great. When I was a student and we were all fascinated by Art Deco and we particularly looked at the, the 20s and 30s, one of the things that also fascinated me was that a lot of um, costume jewellery was copying real jewellery. Yes. And it was very much that thing that I discovered that you were talking about dress clips, that even with costume jewellery, you would have dress clips that were in a, in a brooch frame, as it were, and yes. they unclipped off yes. that frame. Absolutely. So the costume jewellery was actually a real replica of high jewellery, rather than just costume jewellery pretending to be whatever it was. Um, yes. And I think the craftsmanship was very much you know, of, of an extraordinary high quality. That doesn't really follow any longer. Um, hmm. Yes and no. Um, I would say there are still one or two high fashion brands around that do pretty good quality costume jewellery, but it's not replicating high jewellery because some of them actually have their own high jewellery ranges obviously they want to keep a big differentiation between yeah. the two um but even so people like save oddly enough Bottega Veneta have always done really nice heavy silver jewellery now I don't know whether you would call that costume jewellery or the real thing but it tends to be to be silver rather than gold and it's still pretty expensive yeah um, but they, I don't think they do have a high jewellery range as such. So it's, it's, a slight, it, it's the nearest they get to that. Um, somebody else who, who was, certainly when, when Albara Buzz was there, Lonva were doing very, quite interesting costumes. Yeah. It was pretty oh, that, yes. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that, that's, that's very important. And I think that what you're saying as well about houses who've moved into high jewellery in recent decades who didn't have a history for it they clearly see it as building their brand oh hugely yes 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 um because again you've got the spin-off so whereas if you'd like looking at fashion it spins down from couture down to ready to wear to perfumes and cosmetics the jewelry side can go from from high jewelry down through we were saying the more accessible pieces mm. right through to costume jewelry um, so, I mean, Chanel does very, has done for a very long time, extremely successful costume jewellery. And you can pick up sort of 60s costume jewellery in auctions from Chanel and you probably pay a lot more than they would have charged for the first, you know, in the first place for yeah. it. Yeah. And I was thinking of, of some of the, I think it was Vuitton who introduced high jewellery some years ago, wasn't yes. it? Which they had no actual history of. Nope, that's absolutely right. They didn't. But that's very interesting, actually, because Oddly enough, Chanel did not have a history of high jewellery. They did the one collection, which I think was 1932, the famous diamond collection, when yeah. Chanel was loaned a whole load of diamonds and did that one collection based on comets and shooting stars and all that. Um, and then they didn't really go back into all that, I think, until the 80s. They did the costume jewellery all the way along yeah. and then went yeah. back into it uh, with watches and jewellery sort of, you know, probably less than 40 years ago. Because she always mixed real and fake, of course, exactly. Chanel herself. Yes, yes, and, and all those pearls were mainly fake. You know? <laughs> <laughs> in her, obviously, her costume jewellery collections, loads of pearls, but they weren't the real thing. Now, my yeah, goodness, their high jewellery collection is full of real pearls. <laughs> because because there, uh, there are a huge amount of techniques to fake pearls, aren't there? Yes. And particularly back in the day. 
So I think yes. that's I think that's also another thing that you do need to have a bit of knowledge before you start splashing any real money out. Absolutely. Uh, you're so right, because oddly enough, uh, somebody I know quite well asked me for some advice on um, pearls for, for, for his daughter fairly recently. And I've said, said, you know, you really have to trust the person you're getting from. You've got to know what you're buying. Yeah. But you normally can, I mean, if you buy them for a reputable source, you'll know on the price because real pearls have actually got a lot more expensive mm. over the last few years. I think even freshwater pearls, the prices have gone up a lot compared yeah. to what they used to be. Like everything else. I mean, I'm very confused by jewellery, actually, in this sense, because I keep being told how rare certain stones are. But you're going, hang on a minute, stones don't normally disappear. I mean, stones are some of the most durable things on earth, particularly diamonds. How can they be getting rarer? <laughs> because they're still there. You would imagine all the diamonds that have ever been cut and polished are still around somewhere. So why are they so rare? <laughs> Nobody are they in are they in people's vaults and are people not having things reset? People are having things reset. That That's one of the interesting changes that has come out of the pandemic that so many jewellers I know are finding they're remodelling pieces for people because perhaps particularly during the lockdowns, people have had time to go through their drawers and their old jewellery boxes and they maybe know they've got something left over by their granny that they've never worn and they look at it and think, I actually don't like it, but oh, that's rather a nice stone in the middle there. So perhaps I could get someone to reset that for me. Um, and this is happening quite a lot and it's all part of this move in jewellery as in fashion towards customised, personal, that sort of thing which is coming through more and more so you want to take your old stone from granny to a jeweler that you perhaps know or somebody that you've heard is very good at doing these things and get them to come up with a new design for it perhaps adding in a few new new stones and a different setting whatever it is or turning a ring into a stone from a ring into a pendant or something like that there's so many different things you can do um, and that is an area which is really growing at the moment that's a perfect end to this piece because it leads me into our third conversation with my next question. <laughs>